When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Chapter Eleven of Thirty Two Caliber by Donald McGibney. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Thirty Two Caliber by Donald McGibney. Chapter Eleven A Double Indictment. Jim was buried on Tuesday. The funeral was very quiet, only Mary and myself, with a few of Jim's most intimate friends attending. I have always had a repugnance to large and ostentatious funerals and I felt that Jim would have preferred to have the actual ceremony over as quickly and quietly as possible. It affected me too much to allow me to think of anything else but my loss at the time, and I should have left town the day after, had I not received a summons to appear before the grand jury. Mary called me up and told me that she, too, had been summoned, so I drove the car around for her. She was nervous and frightened at the thought of having to testify, and she asked me all the questions she could think of on what to do and what to say. I reassured her, telling her the district attorney was friendly to Jim, and that I was confident our testimony as to Helen's words would stave off any indictment, until Helen was well enough to testify. But, Warren, the fact that she was delirious will make it pretty shaky testimony, won't it? Mary argued. Yes, that's true but I don't think that they will want to bring an indictment while Helen is ill. You see, the indictment couldn't be served anyway, and I think our testimony will convince them there's a reasonable doubt as to Helen's guilt. She seemed convinced until the gloomy bulk of the courthouse came into view, when terror rushed back fourfold. Oh, Bups, can't I get out of it? No, dear, it's got to be gone through with. Remember, it depends on you and me. "'But what if they ask me Jim's and Helen's conversation "'before they started for the country club? "'Tell them as little as possible, but stick to the truth. "'We know Helen's innocent, and the truth can't hurt her.' "'We passed Inspector Robinson in the hall downstairs, "'and the half-smile on his lips irritated me. "'It was his report to the grand jury that had stirred things up. "'He knew only too well that with the sensational son to back him, an indictment would be taken by the public to mean proven guilt. At the entrance to the ante-room we found Wicks, his face drawn into lines of the most acute misery. I couldn't help it, sir. They made me come. I know it, Wicks. Don't worry. It is merely a formality, I reassured him. I hope so, sir, but I don't like it. None of us do, Wicks, but it can't be helped, I replied. Did Annie come with you? No, sir. "'Strange to say, she wasn't called, sir.' "'Good. That helped our case some. 
Mary and I walked into the anteroom to wait our turn. The coroner was already there. Wicks had followed us and took a seat close by. Mary's face was a study in suppressed nervousness. "'Couldn't you go in there with me, Bupps?' she asked. "'No, Mary, the grand jury does its work in secret.' A clerk called the coroner, and as he passed from the room, Robinson and Pickering came in. Robinson didn't even glance in my direction, but Pickering walked over quickly and shook hands. "'Devilish sorry things have taken the turn they have, old man,' he said. "'You mean about my sister?' "'Yes. Robinson seems to think he has all the proof he needs. I wish I could help you.' "'Thanks awfully,' I replied. He had only been seated a few moments when he was called to testify. As the coroner left the room, I tried to read in his face the nature of his testimony, but it was inscrutable. Pickering was out in less than ten minutes, and then Wicks was called. His legs seemed a bit shaky as he started for the door, and he gave me a parting look, half awe, half terror. Robinson paced up and down, his short, stubby legs expressing confidence and satisfaction. Every turn he scrutinized Mary, as if trying to place her in some criminal category. At last Wicks came out, perspiring as if he'd been in a steam-bath. Robinson looked him over once, gave a snort of derision, and passed into the jury-room. I wanted to ask Wicks some questions, but the poor man fled before I could attract his notice. Mary got up and walked over to the big windows, where a flood of warm September sunlight poured into the room. For a moment she stood gazing down on the crowded square below, then suddenly turned and half sobbed. "'Bups, I can't stand it. I may say something that will hurt Helen.' Great sobs shook her slender body. I went over and clumsily tried to comfort her. "'Mary, dear, Helen didn't do it. When she is well enough we'll be able to find out all about it. Even if they do bring an indictment, Helen can prove her innocence.' The sobs diminished to sniffles, and then to occasional sighs. She opened her bag, extracting a miniature powder-puff, and dabbed at her small, upturned nose spitefully. I knew that the storm had passed. "'I know that, that I'm foolish to cry, but I c c couldn't help it.' A clerk opened the door and called Mary's name. She gave me a startled glance, and her face blanched. I thought she was going to break down again but suddenly I saw her raise her chin defiantly, and an angry sparkle come to her eyes. She snapped shut her vanity bag and marched toward the jury-room like a soldier, sentenced to be shot, yet determined to die bravely. It was only after she had left that I begun to think about my own testimony. After all, the evidence was terrifyingly strong against Helen. She had threatened to kill Jim. She had quarreled with him just before their last ride, had chosen the back seat purposely, had Jim's revolver with her, and knew she was being taken to see her lover humiliated and threatened. Against all this I had only a brother's faith in his sister, and those half-dozen words cried out in a delirium. A sickening certainty that they would indict Helen came over me. What if she did? What if she should confess? In some way I had to save Helen, if only for mother's sake. After all, Woods, too, had threatened Jim. He knew Jim had proof of his dishonesty. 
He had made the engagement and had asked Jim to come alone. At this point of my review of the facts, I decided to tell the jury all. If Woods was at the country club the entire evening, he would be able to establish a complete alibi, and my testimony would not hurt him, while it might be enough, if I could make it so, to hold the jury until Helen could testify. Hearing steps outside, I turned to see the object of my mental attentions walk into the room. "'You're here, Woods,' I queried. "'Yes. Those admirable servants of your sister's gave the police just enough of the vulgar details of that meeting between Felderson and myself to make them think I—well, they ordered me to report, and here I am.' He looked worried and irritable. For the first time I realized what the man must have gone through during the last few days, with his business troubles and Helen's injury. How he had met his obligations without Helen's money, I didn't know. I should have thought you'd have been glad to testify to save Helen from an indictment. Woods whirled round. You don't mean to say there's a chance that Thompson— Why, she didn't do it. She couldn't have done it. She— she isn't capable of doing such a thing. It's monstrous. I've read that rot that the sun has been printing, but I didn't think— I I can't think anyone would take it seriously. A gray shadow seemed to fall across his face. Feldersen was shot from behind, and Helen was the only one with him, I threw out, watching Woods closely to see what effect the words would have on him. The man looked as though he knew more about the crime than I supposed. I know that. But haven't people sense enough to see that Helen is utterly incapable of such an act? Good God, they must be blind. I was brought back to the business on hand by hearing my name shouted. They must have let Mary out by another door, for when I entered the jury room she was not there. It was hot and stuffy smelling of stale tobacco and the staler clothing. I noticed that the jurymen seemed deeply interested, and that they were for the most part a rather intelligent lot. The foreman, a near-sighted, business-looking person, seemed to radiate sympathy through his glasses. The district attorney, Kirkpatrick, knew Jim well, had his help often, and was one of his best friends. "'What is your name?' he asked. "'Warren Thompson.' Your address? 1132 Grant Avenue. Your business? I am a lawyer, I responded. The district attorney seated himself at a table and arranged some papers before him. You were what relation to the deceased? The brother-in-law, I replied. Mr. Thompson, the attorney began, leaning on the table in front of him, "'Will you please tell the jury if there was any unhappiness in the married life of your sister and brother-in-law?' "'Until recently Mr. and Mrs. Felderson were happy together. During the last three months their happiness has not been quite so pronounced.' "'What was the cause of their disagreement?' I determined to begin my attack on Woods at once. "'A man whom Mr. Felderson disliked and did not wish to come to the house. "'Can you tell the jury the man's name?' Frank Woods. The attorney glanced at his notes. Did this man Woods make love to Mrs. Felderson? I couldn't say. He was very attentive to her. Did Mrs. Felderson ask her husband for a divorce? Yes, I replied. And Mr. Felderson refused? 
No, Mr. Felderson consented. Are you sure of that? he demanded. Yes, I was present when he said he would give her a divorce. Was Woods there at the time? Yes, the foreman of the jury interrupted here. Will you tell the jury just what took place at that meeting? I told them briefly what happened, not forgetting to mention that Woods had threatened Jim's life in case he did not let Helen go. "'Has that man been summoned?' asked the foreman. "'Yes, he is waiting to appear now,' the clerk responded. "'Mr. Thompson, did you hear your sister threaten to kill her husband?' Kirkpatrick asked. "'My sister was very excited at the time, and said several things. "'Please answer my question,' fired the district attorney. "'I can't remember,' I replied. "'Kirkpatrick again consulted his papers.' A witness says that on the evening of the disagreement between Mr. and Mrs. Felderson, she used the words, I could kill him, referring to her husband. Did you hear her use those words? I don't think she realized what she was saying. I did not ask for your opinions. Did you hear her say she could kill him, or that she would like to kill him? Yes. The attorney seemed satisfied, and I noticed the foreman of the jury lean back in his chair. Now, Mr. Thompson, Kirkpatrick began, on the evening of the tragedy, did you see Mrs. Felderson leave with Mr. Felderson? No, I replied. Do you know if she was sitting in the back seat or in the front seat of the automobile? he asked. I couldn't say. Kirkpatrick took Jim's revolver from the table. Is this revolver familiar to you? "'I don't know. "'Did Mr. Felderson have a revolver like this?' he demanded. "'Yes.' "'Do you know whether he was carrying it at the time of the tragedy?' "'I'm not sure,' I stated. "'Did Mr. Felderson usually carry a gun?' "'No.' "'Did Mrs. Felderson have a revolver?' "'No,' I replied. "'I don't think she even knows how to use one.' "'Please only answer my questions.' Kirkpatrick rebuked me sharply. "'You have stated to the jury that Mr. Woods had threatened Mr. Felderson's life in case he did not give Mrs. Felderson a divorce. When did Mr. Felderson intend giving his wife the promised divorce?' "'I don't think he really intended to give Mrs. Felderson a divorce.' "'But you stated that he consented to a divorce.' "'He did, but with certain reservations,' I answered." What were those reservations? That there should be nothing in Mr. Woods' past that would cause Mrs. Felderson trouble in the future, in case she married Woods. Did Mr. Woods know of Mr. Felderson's intention not to divorce Mrs. Felderson? he demanded. I don't know. I know that Mr. Felderson had made an important discovery about Mr. Woods' past life. Was this discovery of such a nature as to cause Mr. Felderson to refuse a divorce? It was, I answered. Can you tell the jury what this discovery was? No, I cannot. Did Mr. Woods know that Mr. Felderson had made this discovery? I think he did. Aren't you certain? No. This is important, Mr. Thompson. Will you tell the jury why you think Mr. Woods knew of Mr. Felderson's discovery? "'Because Mr. Woods called Mr. Felderson up shortly after the discovery was made "'and asked for an interview at the country club. 
"'Was Mr. Felderson on his way to that meeting when he met his death?' the attorney inquired. "'Yes,' I responded. "'Do you know whether Mr. Felderson intended to inform Woods that he would not divorce Mrs. Felderson?' "'I think he intended to accuse Woods of dishonesty,' I replied. "'Mrs. Felderson knew the purpose of this meeting, did she not?' "'I couldn't say.' Kirkpatrick turned to the jury. "'Has the jury any questions they wish to ask?' "'I seized my opportunity. "'I would like to say a few words with the permission of the jury.' "'Receiving a nod of consent, "'I related to them as briefly as possible "'my conviction of my sister's innocence, "'her cry of danger to her husband, "'and the coincidence of the black limousine on the road "'at about the same time as the tragedy. "'I also told of the enmity of Zalnik for Jim,' and of his presence with the others in that black limousine. The foreman of the jury leaned forward. Will you repeat the words that your sister uttered? She cried, Look out, Jim, it's going to hit us. Your sister was delirious at the time, was she not? Yes, I answered, but from the tone of her voice, I feel perfectly sure she referred to something that occurred on the night of the tragedy. "'You think she referred to the black limousine when she said it's going to hit us?' the foreman continued. "'Yes.' "'Yet the coroner's verdict was that your brother-in-law was killed by a bullet, fired apparently from behind and above. I felt the weakness of my ground. "'The bullet might have been fired from the automobile and ricocheted from some part of Mr. Felderson's machine.' I saw the incredible smile that played on the face of the prosecutor. "'That will do, Mr. Thompson,' Kirkpatrick announced, and passed out of the stuffy room into the corridor. Wicks had returned and was standing with Mary. They looked at me with wide and anxious eyes. Mary saw the droop in my shoulders and caught my arm. "'What happened, Warren?' she asked. "'Nothing yet,' I responded. "'Are they going to?' "'I don't know, I don't know.' Tears welled up in Mary's eyes. "'Oh, Warren, that man was terrible!' "'What man?' I asked. "'The man who asked me all the questions,' Mary sobbed. "'There wasn't anything he didn't ask me.' "'Did he ask you about the conversation between Helen and Jim?' "'He asked me everything, I tell you,' Mary exclaimed angrily. "'He twisted and turned everything I said into something horrible.' "'Discouraged, I led the way to the car.' I drove out into the country, thinking the fresh air might quiet Mary's nerves. Twice I tried to start a conversation about some trivial thing to take her mind off the unpleasant experience of the afternoon, but with no success. It always came back to the jury room. Our drive, for the most part, was a silent one. At length we turned back, and as we walked up the steps of Mary's home, her father came from the house with a newspaper in his hand. "'This is terrible, Warren!' "'What is it?' I cried, reaching for the sheet. It was an extra edition of the press, our only respectable paper. In black headlines I read the words, "'Society Leader Indicted for Husband's Murder.' Then underneath in small type, "'Frank Woods, well-known businessman, released on ten thousand dollars bail helen and frank woods had both been indicted end of chapter eleven
Chapter Twelve of Thirty Two Caliber by Donald McGibney. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Thirty Two Caliber by Donald McGibney. Chapter Twelve. Who am I? I jumped into the automobile and drove as fast as I could to the offices of Simpson and Todd, the best criminal lawyers in the state, to retain them as counsel for Helen. Simpson had already gone home. But George Todd was there, and I talked the case over with him. "'You can get a stay of proceedings, can't you?' I asked. "'Surely,' he replied. "'I'll see that the warrant isn't served until Mrs. Felderson's doctor assures me she's out of danger. The trial needn't come off for three or four months—six, if you wish. We can see to that. In the meantime, when will you be able to see Mrs. Felderson?' "'I was going up there now,' I answered. The chances are the doctor won't let me question her yet, but it may be we can see her. Will you come with me? I'd like very much to. Wait till I get my coat. We ran up to the hospital and asked if we could be admitted, if only for a few moments, to Mrs. Felderson's room. Johnson, the little intern with the glasses, had just come in, and when he heard my request, he was sputteringly indignant. "'What the devil do you think Mrs. Felderson is suffering from? A broken ankle? "'Don't you realize she has been desperately ill? "'If you tried to question her now, she'd become excited, "'and it might result in a serious relapse. "'Of course you can't see her. "'You won't be able to talk to her for two or three weeks yet.' "'I'm sorry,' I said. "'I should have known better. It was stupid of me. "'But then I've been little else than stupid for days.' This tragedy has been too much for me. You will let me know as soon as she can be seen, won't you, Johnson? I'll let you know, he murmured. You may be able to see her tomorrow, but I won't let you bother her with any infernal questions until she is well. The week passed only too slowly. Each day I went to the hospital and sat for a brief fifteen or twenty minutes by Helen's side. She was fully conscious, and I thought I could see at times that there were questions she wanted to ask me. Remembering the doctor's emphatic instructions, I said very little, never asking any questions, only telling her a few of the unimportant happenings of the town. She seemed uninterested, and lay apathetically, except when some apparently perplexing question corrugated her brows. They told her of Jim's death early in the week— but far from being shocked, she had appeared almost indifferent, showing only too plainly how little he meant in her life, Woods she never referred to. Mary, of course, was her devoted slave, hardly leaving her bedside, and in our daily meetings at the hospital I fell more in love with her, if such a thing were possible. Once, when I was coming up the corridor with a large bunch of flowers, I met her outside Helen's door. As she took the blooms from me, she reached up and patted my cheek. "'Bups, you're a darling to bring these lovely flowers to Helen every day. I think you're quite the nicest brother a girl could have.' "'If you think that, why won't you have me?' I asked. "'I think I will,' she answered, smiling. "'For a brother.' She started to open the door, but I grasped her hand. "'Mary, do be serious. You know I love you.' She haughtily drew herself up in all the majesty of her five feet three inches, and commanded, "'Unhand me, villain! I spurn your tempting offer!' Then earnestly, "'Let me go, Bups. I've got to put these flowers away.' 
With a quick wrench she freed herself and was gone, leaving me half sick with love of her. After the first sensational extra, the newspapers had said but little of Helen and Frank's indictment. Somehow I was confident that Helen would be able to clear herself. Woods had published a statement in which he said he would be able to prove where he was every minute of the evening of the tragedy, and so had had no difficulty in finding bail. In fact, since the indictment, he seemed to have gained a good deal of sympathy and popularity. Everyone who knew of his devotion to Helen felt that he had indicted himself to try to save her. One morning, about a week after my interview with the bespectacled intern, I met Dr. Forbes as he was coming from Helen's room, and he gave me permission to ask her a few questions. "'I'm trusting to your good sense, Thompson, not to overdo it,' Forbes cautioned. "'Remember, she is still in a very weak condition, and don't be surprised if she fails to respond to your questions as you expect. Above all things, do not refer in any way to the fact that she has been indicted. The shock might be too much for her.' "'Thank you, doctor,' I replied, eager to get away. "'I'll be very careful.' and remember no more than ten minutes this first time. I nodded and opened the door. Helen was propped up in bed and showed unmistakably the great suffering she had been through. She was pale and wan, but smiled when she saw me and gave me her cheek to kiss. "'Good morning,' she whispered. The flowers were lovely. "'I'm glad you liked them, sis dear,' I said, sitting down by the side of her bed. I asked her the usual questions— how she felt, and if she wanted anything, and then tried to lead up to the only question that was of any consequence to either of us. "'Helen, dear, there are certain questions about your accident that have puzzled us. The doctor said that you could talk for ten minutes this morning, and I want to ask you some questions.' "'Wait a minute,' she interrupted. "'Did the doctor say I might really talk this morning?' "'Yes, dear.' "'There are a hundred questions that you must answer me. "'I want to know so many things.' "'She looked away and passed a thin hand over her forehead. "'Finally she turned her big brown eyes toward me and said, First, tell me who I am.' "'For a brief second I felt numb all through. "'My brain whirled until I thought my head would burst. "'Helen, dear, what did you say?' "'My speech was thick as though my tongue was swollen.' Still keeping her gaze fixed on me, she continued, "'They call me Helen, and I gather that you are my brother. "'There is a beautiful girl who comes here every day. "'She and I seem to be great friends, but I don't know her. "'I have heard them call her Mary. "'Tell me who she is.' "'If I could have run from that room, I should have done so. "'A horror gripped me such as I never felt before.' Then I saw two large tears tremble in Helen's eyes, overflow and course down her cheeks, and I gathered all the strength that I could muster for the task of trying to awaken a memory that had apparently ceased to function. Helen, dearest little sister, I am your brother. The beautiful girl you speak of is Mary Pendleton, one of the best and truest friends you ever had. She was your bridesmaid, don't you remember? Helen shook her head weakly. "'I have been married, then,' she asked. "'You were married to James Felderson,' 
"'Can't you remember him?' I begged. Again she shook her head. "'No, it's all gone.' She thought hard a minute, and then she asked, "'He is dead, my husband?' "'Yes,' I muttered, trying to keep the tears back. "'He was killed in the same accident.' "'What was he like?' she interrupted. "'Helen, think!' I cried, fighting blindly against the terror that was choking me. "'Little sister!' You must think hard. Jim, don't you remember big, handsome Jim? I snatched my watch from my pocket and opened the back, where I carried a small picture of Jim, taken years before. I had put it there in boyish admiration when I first knew him. I held it up in front of her eyes. You must remember him, Helen. She gazed at the picture with eyes in which there were tears and a little fright, but not a spark of recognition. Fearing that I was over-exciting her, I sat close to her and drew, as best I could, a mental picture of Jim. I was only halfway through the recital when the door opened and Dr. Forbes came in. Ten minutes are up, Mr. Thompson. I stooped and kissed Helen. Promise that you'll come back tomorrow, she whispered. I promised and hurried from the room, Outside, the doctor awaited me questioningly. "'Her memory is completely gone,' I gasped. The doctor patted me on the shoulder sympathetically. "'We suspected that day before yesterday. I would have told you before, but thought that your questions might start her memory functioning.' I gripped him by both arms. "'But, doctor, can nothing be done? Will she have to—have to begin all over again?' I can't say yet. There may be some pressure there still. We'll have to wait until she is much stronger before we can tell. End of chapter 12「Chapter 13 of 32 Caliber by Donald McGibney. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 32 Caliber by Donald McGibney, Chapter 13 we plan a defense. Helen's loss of memory was the last straw. The shock of finding her unable to remember the most familiar things was bad enough from a purely physical standpoint, but when I realized how completely it swept away all my plans for Helen's defense, how it fastened the guilt on her poor shoulders, I felt that our case was hopeless indeed. I drove to the offices of Simpson and Todd and was lucky enough to find them both in. Simpson, a slender man with steel-gray hair and eyes, at once ordered a closed session to thrash out the whole affair. He first made me repeat everything I knew about Jim's murder from the beginning. Several times he interrupted me to ask a question, but for the most part he sat with his back to me, gazing out of the window, the tips of his fingers to his lips. Half the time I thought he wasn't listening, until a quick question would show his interest. Todd, on the contrary, was the picture of attention. He took notes in shorthand most of the time I was talking. When I had finished, Simpson rose and came over to me. "'Let's examine this thing from the start. You have three people who had a motive for killing Felderson—Zalnick, Woods, and Mrs. Felderson. Let's take Zalnick first, for I think suspicion falls the slightest on him. You say that Felderson helped to convict Zalnick in the Yellow Pier case— 
and that he made vague threats against those who put him in prison, after he was released. Good, there's a motive and a threat. He was seen on the same road that Mr. Felderson traveled a short time before the murder. All those facts point to Zalnick's complicity. But the bullet that killed Felderson was fired from behind and above, according to the coroner's statement. Knowing the average juryman, I should say that we would have to stretch things pretty far to make him believe that a shot fired from one rapidly moving automobile at another rapidly moving automobile would ricochet and kill a man. That's asking a little too much. Also, it is hard to believe that Schreiber, who was driving the car, would risk a smash-up to his own car, and possibly death for himself and party, in order to try to make Felderson go into the ditch. Then, too, if Zalnick recognized Felderson's car, why didn't he fire point-blank at Felderson instead of waiting until he got past? No, the case against Zalnick falls down. We can strike him off the list. I hated to give up, but I had to admit Simpson's logic was faultless. Now let us take up the case of Woods. Here is a man who threatened Felderson's life unless he gave his wife a divorce, which you say Felderson did not intend to do. There again is a motive. Woods knew that Felderson was in possession of certain papers that would ruin him. There is a stronger motive, he turned to me. By the way, you have those papers, haven't you? I hadn't thought of them until that very minute. I don't know where they are right now, but I'm pretty sure I can find them. He nodded. Get hold of them by all means. They may be important to us. He lit a cigar and threw himself into a chair. Well, let's go on. Woods had all the motive necessary for killing Felderson. He made a definite engagement with Felderson on the night of the murder to meet him at a certain time and place specified by Woods. That's important. Everything up to that point is as clear as crystal, yet you say you have positive testimony that Woods was at the country club waiting for Felderson at about the time the murder took place, and Woods claims that he has an absolute alibi. If that is true, it lets him out. I'm not so sure he was at the country club at the time the murder took place, I explained. I only know he was there just before and just afterwards. What do you know of his movements that night? Simpson asked. I know he dined there at 7.30 or thereabouts, and that he ordered a drink at 8.25. And what time was the murder? Probably a quarter past eight. The bodies were found at half past, let's say, I answered. Simpson shook his head. I'm afraid his alibi is good. It's cutting things too fine to think that he could have run six miles and back in less than half an hour, and committed a murder in the bargain. It would have taken a speedy automobile. Do you know whether he had an automobile that night? he queried. I think he did. I can find out in a minute, I added, going to the telephone. I called up the country club and finally succeeded in getting Jackson on the wire. Jackson thought Mr. Woods did not have an automobile that night, because he had gone to town in Mr. Paisley's car. He might have used somebody else's car, Todd suggested. Simpson shook his head again. We're clear off the track now. An idea came to me suddenly, and I called up Pickering at the Benefit Insurance Company. This is Thompson speaking, Pickering, I said. Yes. 
Do you remember if an automobile passed you on the night of the Felderson murder, going toward the country club? No. Do you mean you don't remember? No, I remember perfectly. There was only one automobile passed us, and that was the black limousine. You're sure? I asked. I'm positive, old man. We only saw one car from the time we left Blandsville until we reached the city. I put up the receiver and sank back into my chair. Well, Todd flung at me. I'm out of luck, I responded. Simpson rose. Let's go on. We have crossed off two of our suspects from the list. Let's see. I'd rather not go on, I interrupted, looking out of the window to escape Todd's searching eyes. There was a moment's silence, then Simpson spoke. We'll do our best, but it will be a hard fight. If Mrs. Felderson could only recall what happened that night and before, we might have a chance. But every woman that has come up for murder during the last few years has worked that lost memory gag. But my sister really has lost her memory, I exclaimed. I know, my dear boy, Simpson soothed. That is what makes it so difficult. If she were only shamming now, we could— but, with your sister as helpless as a child, the prosecuting attorney will so confuse her that our case will be lost as soon as she takes the stand. Why put her on at all? I asked. Because we have to if we hope to win our case, he replied. The one big chance to win your jury comes when your beautiful client testifies. For a few minutes he was silent, obviously thinking, and thinking hard. "'Of course our defense will have to be temporary insanity,' he declared at last. "'Oh, not that!' I begged. "'It's our only chance,' Simpson argued, "'and I don't mind saying that it's a pretty poor chance at that. Three years ago it might have been all right, "'because a conviction only meant a few months at a fashionable sanitarium, "'and then freedom. "'But when that Truesdale woman went free, "'an awful howl went up all over the country,' and I'm afraid the next woman who is found guilty but insane will be sent to a real asylum. A shudder of horror ran through me. For Helen to be sent to an asylum, while her mind was in its weak state, might well mean permanent insanity. You talk to your sister as often as you can, and try to help her recover her lost memory. Of course, you'll have the best specialists examine and prescribe for her. In the meantime, we'll investigate both the Woods and the Zalnik cases to see if they are holeproof. You might get those papers on Woods, if you will, Todd reminded me. I thanked them and left, greatly depressed, but ready to fight to the last ditch to save Helen's life. The papers dealing with Woods had not been among Jim's effects when I had looked them over at the office, and I was confident that they had not been picked up on the night of the murder, for they would have been returned to me. Thinking they had probably been left in one of the pockets of the automobile, I overlooked when the machine was searched, I decided to run out to the Felderson home the first thing in the morning. End of chapter 13 Chapter 14 of 32 Caliber by Donald McGibney This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 32 Caliber by Donald McGibney Chapter 14 Bulletproof Jim's car had been moved to his own garage the morning after the accident, 
and, as I had a pass-key to the place, I found it unnecessary to go to the house at all. Wicks and Annie were taking care of the establishment until Helen should come home, or the house be sold. I opened the door of the garage and shuddered involuntarily as I caught sight of the wrecked Peckwith Pierce. It had been more badly smashed than I had at first supposed. On the night of the murder I saw that the chassis was twisted and the axle broken, but I had not noticed what that jolting crash had done to the body of the car. The steering rod was broken, and the cushions were caked with mud. One wheel sagged at a drunken angle like a lop-ear, and the windshield was nothing but a mangled frame. One long gash ran the length of the body, as though it had scraped against a rock, and this gash ended up in a jagged wound of the size of a man's head. In the back were three small splinter-holes. I examined these with particular interest, wondering what could have caused them. Evidently the police had neglected to examine the machine. The sight of what looked like the end of a nail caused me to drop to my knees and to begin digging frantically at the wood with my penknife. At the end of five feverish minutes I held the prize in my hand. It was a misshapen steel thirty-two rifle bullet. In the floor of the car, near where Jim's feet must have been, I found two more splintered holes, apparently made by the same rifle from which the shots had been fired into the back of the car. Two thoughts flashed through my mind, exuberant assurance that this latest discovery cleared Helen completely. She couldn't have fired the rifle from the rear seat of the automobile, nor could she have put those bullet holes into the back of the car. In my joy that I had found proof of my sister's innocence, I forgot to speculate on who could have committed the murder. My second thought was really a continuation of the first, that I must bring the coroner, Anne Simpson, at once to confirm my discovery. I carefully locked the door of the garage, as though fearful somebody would rob me of my find, or that the automobile might move away of its own volition, then I ran to the house and rang the bell. All the curtains were drawn, and I had about decided there was no one at home, when, after what seemed an interminable wait, I heard the sound of footsteps within, and Wicks opened the door. "'Who'd you expect to see, Wicks, a policeman?' I asked. "'No, sir. One of those blarsted reporters, sir.' "'Poor old Wixie,' I sympathized. "'Well, it'll soon be over now. I want to use the telephone.' I ran down the hall to the table, where I knew the telephone to be, and called up Simpson. He promised he would come right up. The coroner demurred for a moment, pleading important business, but when he heard I had proof that would clear Mrs. Felderson, he too promised to be with me in a few minutes. Wicks, who had been listening, was so excited that he momentarily forgot himself and clutched me by the arm as I put down the receiver. "'Is it true, sir?' "'that you can prove Mrs. Felderson had nothing to do with it?' he gasped. "'Truest thing you know, Wicks. "'I fear I'm going to act unseemly, sir. "'I feel like yelling, "'Yip, yip, sir!' "'Then he noticed he had me by the arm "'and hastily murmured apology. "'That's all right, Wixie, old top. "'Go as far as you like,' I cried. "'I'm so happy and relieved I could kiss the Kaiser.' "'Surely you wouldn't do that, sir!' Wicks reproved. All right, Wicks, I guess it's not to be done this year. The butler turned to leave, but stopped at the door to say, 
"'Mr. Woods called about a week ago, sir.' "'What did he want?' I demanded. "'He stated, and now he was after some papers concerning a business deal "'that he and Mr. Felderson were interested in. "'In the excitement over my discovery, "'I had completely forgotten the real errand that had brought me to the house. "'What did you tell him, Wicks?' "'I told him that you had charge of all Mr. Felderson's effects, sir, "'and that he could probably obtain them from you.' the butler replied. That was right. Did he leave after that? Shortly after that, sir, Wicks answered. But first he asked for the key to the garage, saying he would like to inspect the auto. Did you give it to him? I snapped. Yes, sir. I saw no arm in that, sir. I ran to the garage and quickly searched the broad pockets of Jim's car. The portfolio was not there. I hurried toward the house to ask Wicks if Woods had had any papers with him when he returned the garage key, but slackened my pace before I had gone halfway. After all, it made very little difference. The evidence had only been gathered to keep Helen with her husband. Now, since that was no longer an issue, what did it matter if Woods had stolen the proofs of his own dishonesty? True, Simpson and Todd had asked me to get them, but I felt that they had urged the importance of those papers more to give me something to do than for any real need for them. Just then an automobile came up the drive and Simpson jumped out. He was gravely skeptical until I led him to the garage and showed him the bullet holes. Then he was enthusiastic. He examined the back of the car minutely, and at the end of his scrutiny he turned to me. I'm not at all sure that we were justified in giving that Zalnik a clean bill of health so soon. It is just possible he had a lot more to do with this than we supposed. While we were talking, the coroner drove up. He took the bullet I had extracted from the back of the car, and looked at it as though he expected to find its owner's name etched there, after which he examined the holes in the back of the car, and in the footboard. Then I eagerly related our suspicions against Zalnik, but he shook his head. That would seem to clear Mrs. Felderson, but it also makes it look as though every other suspect is innocent. Look at these holes in the floor. The bullets that lodged there must have been fired from above. Also, you will notice that there are three bullet holes in the back of the car, and two in the footboard beside the shot that killed Mr. Felderson. Unless your friends, the socialists, were carrying a young armory with them, they could never have fired that many shots in the short space of time that it took Mr. Felderson to pass them. I should say that it would take a man from, well, fifteen to thirty seconds at least, to fire six shots at any target, and before that time the automobile would have been out of range. He might have used an automatic rifle, I interposed. The coroner took off his hat and rubbed the bald spot on the back of his head. That is possible, he admitted, but it doesn't explain how those bullet holes got into the floor. There might have been a struggle and the gun discharged into the floor that way. That doesn't explain the holes in the back of the car, I objected, fearing that they would again go back to the theory that Helen was responsible. The holes in the footboard seemed to me "'Positive proof that the shots were fired from above,' Simpson argued. "'Are there any buildings or trees along that road "'where the murderer might have stationed himself "'and waited for Felderson to come along?' "'There are no buildings,' I replied. 
"'But there might be trees in the vicinity of that stream.' "'That sounds as though it might bring results,' Simpson said. "'Thompson, suppose you take the coroner out there and see what you can find. "'In the meantime, I'll start proceedings to quash that indictment against Mrs. Felderson.' The coroner insisted he was due at an inquest that very moment, but would go with me in the afternoon. As we walked toward the cars, Simpson asked me if I had found the papers dealing with Wood's case, and I told him I thought Woods had stolen them, and repeated the information Wicks had given me. "'I don't think we shall need them, fortunately,' Simpson replied. "'Todd saw Woods last night. He's making a frantic effort to raise money,' and came to him, among others. He says that Woods can clear himself of all connection with the crime. Men who were with him that night can testify he didn't leave the club. By the way, Woods hasn't approached you, has he? No, I laughed. He knows I have no money, and if I had I wouldn't give it to him. After they had left I decided to go out to the Blandsville Bridge and do a little preliminary scouting on my own. Eager for Mary's company, and wishing to tell her the glorious news that was to clear Helen, I drove to the hospital, only to find that Mary had not been there, and Helen was asleep, so I drove on to Mary's, hoping to find her home. "'Miss Pendleton is just going out, but I will ask if she will see you,' the maid informed me. I stepped into the living room and picked up a magazine. As I took it in my hand, it fell open to a story entitled, "'Who Murdered Maryvale?' I looked at one of the illustrations and quickly laid the magazine down, conscious that I'd never again read a mystery story built around a tragic death. Then I heard Mary's light step pattering down the stairs and turned to greet her. She was dressed in a smart, semi-military costume, which she had worn while a volunteer chauffeur during the war, and she looked simply radiant. "'Mary, we've made certain discoveries which absolutely clear Helen of suspicion,' I cried, taking her hands in mine. I told her of my find of the morning, and watched her eyes widen with joy and surprise. So while we haven't found out yet who murdered Jim, we know that Helen had no part in it. Mary was thinking hard about something, but she recalled herself quickly and said, "'Oh, it's simply wonderful, Bups!' simply wonderful. I'm going out to the Blandsville Bridge to do a little sleuthing on my own hook. Can you come with me? I'm sorry, but I can't, Warren. I have another engagement, she answered. Some other man? I asked, disappointed and a bit jealous. Yes. Is it that young Davis? She shook her head. It's someone you don't like very well. "'That's natural,' I replied. "'I don't love any of my rivals. "'Who is it? "'Promise you won't say anything if I tell you who it is?' "'Of course I won't say anything,' I said a little haughtily. "'You have a perfect right to go with anyone you care to.' "'It's Frank Woods.' "'Mary!' I gasped. "'Do you mean to say you've been seen with that man? "'After what he did to Jim?' "'Now, Bups, you promise not to say anything.' I know, but this is different. Do you think I'll stand quietly by and see that man make a fool of you as he did of Helen? Do you think I'll let that, that rake make love to you? He's not going to make love to me, Mary answered with some asperity. That's what you think. 
That's what Helen thought, and Jim thought. That's what all of them think when he starts. Do you know what he wants to do? He asked you to go out with him so he could try to borrow money off you, to save his rotten hide. But, Bupps, he didn't ask me to go riding with him. I asked him to take me. You asked him to take you? I cried. Don't talk so loud, Bupps. People on the street will hear you. If there was anything she could have said that would have made me angrier than I already was, it was that. I'm not talking loud, I shouted, and what if I do? The people on the street may hear me, but they will see you with Frank Woods, which is a hundred times worse. Why, it is as much as a girl's reputation is worth to be seen alone with him. I'll take care of my reputation, she replied coldly. You think you will, I said, flinging myself into a chair. Warren, do you know that's insulting? Mary exclaimed angrily. You're acting like a schoolboy. I have a good reason for wanting to go out with Frank Woods. Reasons? I sneered. She went into the hall and I followed. Mary, I don't know what your reasons are and I don't care. I'm not going to have that man making love to you. Either you don't go out with him, or I quit. Mary turned and looked me straight in the eyes. What do you mean? she asked. Any girl who is Frank Wood's friend, after the mess he stirred up in my family, isn't my friend. Mary's face was white, but her little chin was set determinedly. That's just as you wish, she said, and ran upstairs. I picked up my hat and gloves and left the house. End of chapter 14「big on your Memorial Day barbecue all in the Kroger app get three pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for 349 a pound with a digital coupon then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade body armor super drink or Arizona tea for 77 cents each all with your card shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today Kroger fresh for everyone prices and product availability subject to change restrictions apply see site for details